0: Father, thank you for bringing us here today. We know you are here among us. I ask that you open our hearts and you speak through me to each one of us today. Help us understand what you want us to know about the passage that we read this week. Help us to really take it into our lives and use it, Lord, in the way you intend. We praise you for the many, many, many gifts you have given us, including the ability to understand. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen. Okay, so, I don't know about you, but I thought that reading this week was kind of this collection of sort of seemingly unrelated topics. And I thought it was a bit hard to follow. I mean, I have the advantage of knowing what I'm going to teach on, so I was reading it weeks ahead thinking, oh my gosh. Chapter seven, marriage, and celibacy, and divorce, and it's all focused on sexuality, basically. And then chapter eight, eating meat sacrificed to idols. Okay, that was a switch. And, but yet really, when you start reading it, it's about knowledge, and love, and the meaning of spirituality. And then chapter nine, Paul's talking about the rights of an apostle. That's another switch. And there's this lengthy section about work and athletics. Where'd that come from? (laughs) And then chapter 10 flips back, and he's talking about idols and idolatry. And then he's using Israel and our history as an example. And then he flips back to the idols and meat and feasting. And I think it's in chapter 10 that he really kind of completes this discussion about what do you do about meat sacrificed to idols? And I'm thinking, what does this have to do with me? (coughs) And then chapter 11, he's all about women and the concept of headship in relationships, and communion gets thrown in there too. So I admit I was really kind of struggling. What do I talk about? What's important here for all of us? And I tried to figure out how am I gonna put some of this stuff together? And more importantly than that, I think, was why did Paul think these were topics that these Corinthians needed to better understand? And honestly, why do we need to understand these issues today since this letter has been preserved as a part of the New Testament, God intended this to apply to us. And so that confusion sent me to one of my go-to commentators. His name is David Guzik, and it really helped me, so I'm kind of borrowing heavily from his commentary today um, on these chapters. And I hope it helps you as much as it did me really start understanding this in understanding what Paul's purpose and God's purpose was in, in talking about this so much. So I'm gonna encourage you to talk about chapters seven and 11, the kind of book in chapters at your tables today, and I wanna focus on why did Paul spend so much time talking about idols and meat-sacrificed idols? And more importantly, what was he getting at when he talks about freedom versus love for our sisters and brothers? And I think, I've come to see, that Paul was actually making a very sophisticated theological point here. But he was doing so in a way that the audience at the time could easily understand, honestly, much more easily than we can. But those principles that he lays out are just as applicable to us today. Our culture has changed, so we just need a bit more background, I think, about what Corinth was like versus what we're like in order to understand the principles and how we can apply them today. So we know a lot about the world we live in today. It's often very narrowly focused on realize your own potential or be who you really are. And we hear about self-awareness and people will say just go with your gut or I'm going to trust my feelings, and then I came across one that I thought was like really my favorite: Expand your awareness and let the energy flow. I don't have a clue what that means. <laughs> but our focus today is often on our own lives, and on our own desires and our own fulfillment. And we may think we have altruistic motives, but sometimes I've realized for myself those altruistic motives. They need to make me feel good, too. They're not wholly altruistic. I have to feel good about those little kids or the animals or whatever it is. So let's take a minute now and look at Paul's audience at the time, those Corinthians. Paul was writing this letter. Keep this in mind. At the same century, within a couple of decades, as the birth, death, and resurrection of Christ. So I'm going to play with my new toy. Maybe I'm not going to play with my new toy. <coughs> is it on? There, there it goes. It, it went. All right. But there we go. Daphne did that. You did that. Okay. I'll just... Daphne's my... Daphne and Candace. thank goodness for them. Okay. So this is a map. This is a map of where Corinth is. And we, we believe that Corinth, we have history, that Corinth has been inhabited since about 5,000 years before Christ. So... Forever, almost. It's a city located on a strip of land. You can see Corinth right, that little strip. And the land connects mainland Greece up in the north with the Peloponnese Peninsula to the west and south of Greece. It was a trade center, it had a naval fleet. Think about San Diego, we have a naval fleet too. Julius Caesar had established his Roman colony at the site about 40 years before Christ was born. And by the time Paul wrote his letters, Um, Corinth had become this flourishing and very important Roman administrative center, but also a huge trade center in the world. And it was a major Roman colony. Actually, I read there was a stone trench. You know, we have the Panama Canal across that little isthmus. There was a stone trench across that little strip of land that had carved grooves where you could take wheeled wagons across and you could go from the Gulf of Corinth in the north to the Saronic Gulf in the south. And it was so well-traveled that they actually took huge ships from one gulf to the other. And also, for hundreds of years, Corinth had been the home of the Pan-Hellenic Games, which was the second most popular to the Olympic Games that we know today. We don't have Pan-Hellenic Games. Maybe we do, I don't know about them, but we always hear about the Olympic Games. But the Pan-Hellenic Games were huge back in that day. So athletes would have lived and trained in Corinth, and the residents would mostly have been fans and attendees at all these athletic events. And Paul visited Corinth in about 51 or 52 AD and because of his visit, Corinth became the center of early Christianity for all of Greece. So the next slide shows you actual statues from Corinth in the first and second century. Um, and in Corinth at the time of Paul, that was these statues are from that time. The locals worshiped Aphrodite. These are statues of Aphrodite. And the large statue on your right was in Corinth, and it's entirely possible that Paul might have seen this, but some of those new (laughs) Corinthians would have worshiped before they became Christians with this same statue. So they worshiped Aphrodite, they worshiped Poseidon, they worshiped Demeter, among a lot of other gods that were introduced to this area because of the influence of the trade this world trade that went on because of their position at that isthmus. Female goddesses were prominent in Corinth. Aphrodite was considered the supreme deity of the city. In Corinth, women had assumed lots of the customs of very powerful men. They were treated as well as men in many situations, which was very unusual for the time. The women were served food on couches at the same time as the men were being served. None of this was usual for the time of that then. And they engaged in these robust political and kind of governmental administrative discussions with men. All very unusual. So when you talk in your groups, if you decide to do that chapter 7 and 8 where they do talk about women, keep this cultural dynamic in mind about how many strong, dominant women there were in the city at that time. And historically, whenever we see people who worship female goddesses, as they did in Corinth, there's this huge emphasis on fertility. Fertility in nature and agriculture, sexuality. The offerings to these goddesses tended to be more related to food items, which were very perishable. So what became common was ritual dining. Large groups of people coming together, eating. And honestly, it was a practical way to use up some of this perishable food that people were sacrificing to idols, so it was this background that Paul was dealing with when he spoke to the Corinthians, idol worship, many female idols, lots of perishable food that was being sacrificed to those idols, and by sacrifice it was just laid at the feet of these statues, so it was still edible. Um, There was a strong culture of powerful and even dominant women. Frequent communal dining. And this communal dining may have started out as dinner, but it ended up as orgies of excess in every way. So understandably, the new Christians in Corinth apparently had a lot of questions (laughs) about this new life. They were living as Christ followers. So starting in chapter 8, Paul introduces this very sophisticated theological explanation for these Corinthians and for us today. Keep in mind that this all applies to us today. And he wanted to resolve their questions about how their new Christian lives should be lived and to give them principles to help them make decisions about how they should live. And the more I read about this, I think of these decisions as kind of what-now decisions, as opposed to the shall-not decisions. Shall not decisions are pretty clear. There's a hard line. Shall not kill, shall not steal, shall not lie. Those are pretty easy to understand. It's the what now when I'm just not really sure what do I do from here. And it seemed to me that Paul was listing in this letter the areas that he knew the Corinthians would struggle with as they allowed themselves to be changed by the Holy Spirit because they had become new believers. So he sets out in very simple, but I think a very elegant way, he starts laying these building (coughs) blocks in the section that we read this time, how to explain this theological position. How do you make those what now kind of decisions where there's not shall not guidance? How do you decide what to do? So he's listing the issues one at a time. He's telling them the straight scoop. That was your old life. But these principles are your new life now as a follower of Christ. And here's how to make decisions on how to live your life every day as a Christian in Corinth. And then in chapter eight, boom. What about things that are offered as a sacrifice to pagan idols, such as meats and fruit and vegetables? They were abundantly sold in the market. So all these things, they would gather them up from the foot of these idols and they didn't know what to do with them. And they didn't have, you know, they didn't throw them away. They sold them. They were abundantly sold in the markets, and they were sold at the pagan temples, and markets at the pagan temples. And they were cheaper in price, usually, and better in quality because they were things that people were offering to what they thought were gods. So Paul starts, bless you, Paul starts out this chapter not talking about food, really but instead he's talking about principles of knowledge and love and I'm like okay I'm going to just go with this all right he reminds them that christian behavior is founded on love not knowledge which is kind of interesting and he says knowledge puffs up but love edifies so I looked up edify because this is kind of not what I was thinking the difference between love and knowledge is and love that edifies, instructs, it improves, it uplifts, it enlightens us, not knowledge. That's kind of what we think knowledge does, but Paul's saying that's what love does. So by chapter 8 in verses 4 and 6, he gets right to the point. Therefore, and when you see that therefore, you know, Pastor Bob's always telling us you have to look back to what happened. Therefore, and what he's talking about is since love is so important, it's all important to us as Christians, what about eating food offered to idols? Paul says, this section, that we know an idol is nothing. There is only one God, the Father and Jesus Christ. Idols are not competing gods, so meat that's offered to Zeus or Aphrodite. There is no Zeus or Aphrodite. That statue in the pagan temple is nothing. It's a piece of stone. It's meaningless. It's not even dead because it's never been alive. We can imagine that the Corinthian Christians then reasoned maybe something like this. Well, since idols are really nothing, then it means nothing to eat meat sacrificed to nothing idols. And so, therefore, it must mean nothing to eat in the buildings used to worship these nothing idols. And then Paul starts wisely breaking down the differences between just eating the meat and eating the meat in the temples. And and he breaks it down into really simple steps to understand. And it's likely that these Corinthians had lots of questions because Paul spent a lot of time talking about this. And so he goes at their questions one at a time. Can we eat meat we purchase at the pagan temple market? What if we're served, I mean, it gets very detailed. What if we're served meat that gets purchased at the pagan temple while we're guests in someone else's home? What if they buy it and they serve it to us in their home? And then they want to know, can a Christian eat at the pagan temple restaurant, which is that communal dining which they had at most of the temples? And it was generally like a free feast. And it usually, however, spiraled down into this orgy of eating and drinking and eventually immorality. But what if we left before it got too crazy? Would that be okay? So they're, they're just trying to figure out How different is our life now that we're Christ believers than it used to be when we didn't, when we had a different way of life? And Paul's already started answering these questions by pointing out that these are not gods, they are nothing. And so, meat offered to nothing is not technically any different than any other meat. But he isn't done yet. And he points out that not everyone understands that there is nothing to an idol. Those who believe there is something to an idol, so non-believers or brand new believers who are still kind of torn between what am I supposed to believe and what not, they have consciences that are wrongly informed, is how Paul talks about it. Their consciences are defiled, they're not pure. They've lost their purity. And they can be easily led astray as a result of that. They don't have this strong, built-up conscience as a more mature believer would have. And then Paul shifts his argument again. And honestly, you know, I was still trying to figure out that whole last point about the defiled conscience of a pagan idol believer. And I kind of think I got it, but then he shifts again. And in chapter 8, verse 8, He talks about food doesn't commend us to God. I'm like, what? What we eat or drink doesn't make us more spiritual. I thought, well, okay, that's pretty consistent, actually, with what he's been saying. Paul is saying, you are not more spiritual just because you know idols are nothing. And so because they are nothing, you feel this personal liberty that it's okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols because they're nothing. But then, he, but then, if you think about it, he's also saying, you are not less spiritual because you don't eat meat offered to idols. I was going to think, oh my gosh. It's really easy to get confused about this. And, so, and a lot of people do. And I think they get confused because they look at the position. They judge other, people, other people's spirituality on what they do or they don't do by eating or not eating meat offered to idols, as an example. Or let's bring it up to something a little more recent, probably before a lot of you were born, but what about watching movies or dancing or wearing makeup? All of which have been used by Christians as examples of greater or lesser spirituality in fairly recent times, not that long ago. I'm a better Christian, or I'm closer to God because I don't, and then you fill in the blank. I don't wear makeup, or I don't watch anything but PG movies, or I don't wear clothes that are too revealing. That makes me more spiritual. But Paul goes to the heart of the argument. What matters is love towards those in God's family. It's not as much... Am I doing this or doing that? It's how are you loving others in God's family? So let's read. If you have your Bible, grab chapter 8, verse 9 through 13. And I'll be reading mine, which is in New King James, which might be hard for you to understand. But, you know, I'm old and I'm used to it. Anyway, it says, But, but beware, lest somehow this liberty of yours, so we know we have the liberty because the idols are nothing, Beware lest this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And remember, they think that meat means something because they believe in those idols. That's the difference. And because of your knowledge (laughs) shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So he's not saying it's the meat that's important. It's the circumstance around eating the meat. A A Corinthian Christian with this superior knowledge might feel the personal liberty to eat meat sacrificed to idols. And remember, Paul has said, that's okay. There's nothing wrong with eating, with exercising that personal liberty. You, The meat is nothing. It, there's no idol to sacrifice it to. There, there's no such thing. And so eating that meat is a personal liberty that we have. But this is where it gets a little trickier is that person exercising this liberty in a way that becomes a stumbling block that's a hindrance to someone's growing faith? Someone else's growing faith. So I look, you know, I kept thinking about stumbling block. You know, that's not, that doesn't mean a lot. It's sort of a visual, but what does it mean in reality? And I think it means being a hindrance to someone's growing faith or causing confusion or doubt about the Christian life for someone else. I have the liberty to do this, but that person doesn't understand things as much as I do because I'm a more mature Christian. And I need to be more cautious about that person than about exercising my own personal liberty. Paul makes the principle very clear. Our actions should never be based on only what we know to be right for ourselves. We need to consider what is right towards our brothers and sisters in Jesus. We may answer to God and God alone, which is true. But what we answer to God about is how we treat our brothers and our sisters. And then we go to chapter nine and Paul seems to switch topics again and he starts talking about his rights as an, as an apostle. Am I not an apostle and am I not free? The answer is, yeah, you are. And then the more I thought about it, I thought he's not really changing topic as much as he's approaching the same issue from just a different perspective. So remember the context. Paul is addressing Corinthian Christians about their rights based on knowledge to eat meat sacrificed to idols in a pagan temple restaurant. What he's really doing then is asking them to let go of the right that they have to eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols, even as he let go his own rights as an, as an apostle. So Paul spends most of this chapter going over the reasons he has rights as an apostle. And he has rights to eat and drink at the expense of the churches he serves. He has the right to take along a believing wife. And he provides strong and compelling evidence that those who minister to others have the right to be supported with their families by those who they minister to. In fact, Paul says in chapter 9, verse 14, that it is actually a command from the Lord That those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. In other words, be supported by the people they minister to. So, why did he use this passage to make it clear that he and Barnabas were choosing to work themselves to support themselves when he knows he has the right to be supported, and in fact, he says it's (coughs) a command that you can do this? So, he's already told us in chapter 8 that using a right or not using a right, doesn't make a person more or less spiritual. And in chapter 9, he says it's a command from the Lord that those who preach should enjoy the right to be supported. So what's he talking about? How does he reconcile this? And the commentary that I'm kind of using points out that Paul is being entirely consistent with his message. He definitely has the right, as do all ministers of the gospel, to be supported But in his particular situation, in his circumstances, he makes the choice not to exercise that right because for him, in those circumstances, he believes it might hinder the gospel of Christ in those new Christians that Paul is ministering to. Remember, there's no background of the church. This is all new. What mattered was that the gospel not be hindered in any way. Was it more effective for the gospel if Paul should receive support? than he'd receive it. Was it more effective for the gospel if Paul should work for himself? Then he'd do that. What mattered was that the gospel not be hindered in any way by Paul's actions. And how those actions influenced or impacted his audience, so how what Paul did impacted his audience of new first-generation Christians, that was what was important. Paul didn't believe that he was more spiritual because he worked for his own living. And he didn't use the right he had to support from these Corinthians. But he believed instead that they would understand the principle of withholding themselves from taking a right that they could otherwise exercise, such as eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols. If where exercising that right might make their brothers stumble, If he demonstrated for them what giving up a right looked like, that's why he did it. Then he goes on in verses 19 and 23 to show how flexible he is. I am free from all men, that I might win the more. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now I do this for the gospel's sake, that I might be a partaker with you. Paul was free to do what he wanted, but bringing people to Jesus was more important to him than using his freedom selfishly. He sought to win people to Christ by being sensitive to their needs and identifying with them. (coughs) And here, he had to be careful not to make what I think is a mistake in thinking that Paul changed his doctrine or his message to appeal to different groups. He never did. He did not change his doctrine or his message. What he did do was change his behavior or the way he approached people. It had to do with how he lived and how he behaved among the people he was reaching out to with the gospel. His message of Christ and redemption was always the same to everyone, just as ours should be. Then there's this wonderful passage in chapter nine about sports, and an athlete's attitude. So remember that he was speaking to people who hosted the second largest athletic event in the world at that time. And I'm gonna let you talk about that at your tables, but that's why this makes perfect sense to talk about this athleticism to these Corinthians. They really got it instantly. Then we go to chapter 10. And Paul again returns to the topic about what to do with meat offered to idols. And, and he's using the history of Israel as an example. So, for me, I'm just like, wow. Can you see how this entire passage for the week, these five chapters we read, dealt with an issue that clearly must have been causing a lot of questions and problems for the Corinthians? So if we want to recap real quickly, in chapter 8, Paul established two principles. First, an idol is nothing. And it was fine for Christians, Corinthian Christians, who understood this to act according to this knowledge in regard to themselves. Eat the meat. Second, for Christians, love is more important than knowledge. So even though I may know that eating meat sacrificed to idols is all right for me, if it causes my sister or my brother to stumble because they don't have that same knowledge that I do about the Christian life, then I won't do it because that's the loving thing to do. And in chapter nine, Paul showed how important it is for Christians to give up their rights. Even though you have that right, it's important to give it up in some circumstances. Just as Paul gave up his right to be supported by his own preaching of the gospel, so some of those Corinthian Christians have to sometimes give up their right to eat meat that is sacrificed to these nothing idols, based on the principle of love towards their weaker brothers. Paul showed how a Christian has to be willing to give up some things, even good things, that we have a right to do for the sake of winning that race that God has set before us. So I'm gonna finish up, and then I have a question for you that I want us to talk about. It's about how we put these principles into place in our lives today. First though, let's talk about the last chapter, the last part of chapter 10, and it cuts right to the heart of the matter yet again. So I'm going to read chapter 10, verses 15 to 22. I speak as to wise men. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The, blood, the bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. Observe Israel after the flesh are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar. What am I saying then that an idol is anything <clears throat> or that what is offered to idols is anything? No, that's what he's implying. Rather, in other words, what he's saying is that the things with the, which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of the demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? And obviously the answer is no. So, Paul's point was clearer to the Corinthians than it is to us today because of their culture. They were living with these pagan banquets that were given in honor of the idols. In that ancient world, to eat at a table with anyone indicated friendship and fellowship with that person. That was how they, that that was a custom that they had. So an ancient invitation to a meal at one of those pagan temples might have read like this. "Caramon invites you to a meal at the table of the Lord Serapis, in the temple of Serapis. Tomorrow, the 15th, from 9 o'clock onwards. Of course, it wouldn't have been in English. Paul has already explained that an idol is nothing in the world. He's not now saying that idols are something or that they're demons. What he's saying is that demonic spirits take advantage of these idols. They take advantage of idol worship to deceive and enslave people. So without knowing it, People who worship statues or idols such as this are glorifying demons in their sacrifice. So the Corinthians, Corinthian Christians, may have thought that since an idol is not real, it doesn't matter what we eat or where we eat it. And Paul answers that by saying that an idol is in itself nothing. But he also explains that demons take advantage of man's ignorant and self-serving worship of these idols. And then finally, he goes back to the issue of eating meat sacrificed to idols. Can you see how important this topic was to them? He spent so much time on it. And since we know these letters apply to us as well, there are truths in this message that we need to learn to apply today. So in chapter 10, verses 23 and 24, Paul gives us a principle to build on. Don't just avoid what's harmful, but pursue what is good. So just because something is permitted doesn't mean it's beneficial. I think perhaps what Paul was sensing with the Corinthians was that instead of wanting to go forward with Jesus as much as they could, these new Corinthian Christians, they wanted to know how much can I get away with and still be Christians? And that's the wrong approach. He says, let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. Just because something is fine for me doesn't mean I should do it. I must consider what is the loving thing to do towards my family, my new family in Christ. And in case those Corinthians were still having an issue understanding some of these finer points about meat sacrificed to idols, Paul gives these practical guidelines in verses 25 to 30 in chapter 10. And in summary, kind of what he says is, eat whatever's sold in the meat market. So the meat itself is not (coughs) infected because it was offered to idols who are, remember, nothing. There's a difference between eating whatever's sold in the market and partaking of a feast in the pagan temple. He says asking no questions. Some of the meat might have been offered to idols, and some of it might not have been. So Paul's saying meat itself doesn't matter. It's the atmosphere of partaking at the temple, at this pagan temple that concerns him. He makes the point, the commentator makes the point, that the cow belonged to the Lord when it was on the hoof, and it belongs to the Lord now that it's on the barbecue. (laughs) I thought that was pretty good, especially because I was in Texas last week. The food isn't the issue, it's the idol worshiping atmosphere at the pagan temple that's the issue. And then he says, If any of those who don't believe invite you to dinner, and he talks about, he says, Eat what's set before you. So he's contemplating eating with non believers. And he says, don't get into a debate with them over where the meat comes from. Don't ask, and it won't bother you. Notice, this isn't the same as eating at a pagan temple worshiping these, where the idols are worshipped. This is maybe the home of a non-believer who invites you for fellowship for dinner. And then he says, but if anyone says to you, this was offered to idols, and they look at you and you know they're concerned, this was offered to idols. And they want to know what you're going to do. He says, don't eat it. Paul is raising the picture of a Christian who is warned about the food by the non-believing host. It's not the food. It's the attitude of the non-believing host. Paul doesn't want you to let this person who doesn't have the Holy Spirit, who doesn't have the knowledge that you have, be confused about what you believe. And then he says, but if I partake... I do so being thankful for the food. This is the case where you can eat with a clear conscience and not offend anyone else's conscience. The food itself is not the problem. The one principle that Paul is hammering again and again is liberty within the limits of your love for others in the family, and, the, and, and really your love for all others. We should do all to the glory of God. That's in chapter 10, verses 31 through 33. So I'm going to read that too. Therefore, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many that they may be saved. The commentator says, the purpose of our lives isn't to see how much we can get away with and still be Christians. How many of our rights we can exercise and still be Christians. It's to glorify God. None of our behavior should encourage anyone else to sin. Paul's desire regarding others was that they be saved, never for his own profit or his own benefit by exercising the rights that he had. So, I thought it would be interesting to put some of these principles into practice today. We don't have meat offered to idols at our markets in America. But we do have situations that arise where we may question or be unsure about what to do. We're not limited in our freedom. We have freedom. But our freedom is bounded, is the boundaries of our freedom are the love that we have for others and the desire that they all come to know Christ. So my husband and I spent some of last week in Austin, Texas. And unknown to us, when we made our plans, it was the week of South by Southwest, which is a massive film and music festival that goes on for like two weeks. And we were there the last weekend and it was wild. It's sort of like Mardi Gras on steroids, I think. And most of these people have been up 24-7 partying.
1: Um,
0: so there we were. We wandered the streets in the main part of town and they were all pedestrian streets. They blocked off all the streets. And Everyone else was just wild and crazy. And there we were, like these two old people walking around going, oh, my gosh. (laughs) Um, And and we noticed lots of people walking around with these typical pink donut boxes. And I mean lots of people. And, you know, I'm not ashamed to say that I'm kind of a donut person, and so is my husband. Our motto, never pass up an old-fashioned glazed raised. well, you know what I mean. Too much information. Okay. So finally, I asked someone where the shop was. My curiosity overcame me. And embarrassingly enough, we were like standing almost right in front of it. And how I ever missed it, it's like pepto Pepto-Bismol Pink, this huge storm. And I don't know how I ever missed it. But anyway, we looked at this huge line snaking out the door. And I knew we might have found something kind of special. So the next slide is, the Voodoo Donut Shop in Austin. And you can see, this is sort of a spoiler alert, here's the box. This is actually a smaller box than a lot of people were walking around with. And it's got all kinds of pictures, which I just don't want to get too involved in with the Voodoo Donut Shop. I was there for the donuts. Okay, so, um, I honestly, I looked at that, and I'd just seen the pink box, and I hadn't seen the name, and I looked at that, and I just started laughing. Voodoo donuts, okay. I've been working on teaching this message for weeks, and I felt like one of those Corinthian Christians, <laughs> Can I really go into this donut shop and buy and then eat these voodoo donuts? <clears throat> and it wasn't just the name at the shop. Some of these donuts themselves had names or shapes or designs that I'm not gonna mention here. But I will mention one, and I'll show you the next slide. (laughs) Is, this is their big logo. And I took a picture of this, their namesake donut. And it's this cute little man-shaped donut. And it's got this teeny little straight pretzel stuck like a little wooden stake right where its heart would be. And you know, I don't know whether it's like a voodoo doll or a vampire donut, or I don't know what it was. But anyway, they were also amazing sugar bombs. <laughs> they had sprinkles and drizzles and stuff stuck to them. They were sugary goodness and fluffy dough and robed. You no, know, I read that word on a candy box. So I thought it was so good and robed in chocolate. <laughs> and we hadn't had lunch. So, right now, you may be thinking to yourself, this she's gotten a little silly. But work with me, okay? My husband is not a believer. And I always try to be aware that I am not supposed to be a stumbling block. He knows I teach Bible. And he's <laughs> glad that I'm involved. But I'm very aware of what he thinks about my faith. Should I read that? Should I go there? Should I say that? Is it okay for me to watch that show? So here I am, standing in front of the voodoo donut shop, knowing what Paul said about meat offered to idols, standing right in front of this shop. So, what would you have done? That's the question. How do we apply Paul's principles to this kind of situation that we find ourselves in, where we might have this little tug thinking, is it okay for me to do this? I don't know. So let's take a minute and think about the principles that Paul has talked about that we've been talking about this morning. So, what are some of them? If I can get around here, I'll talk loud so that you can hear me. I probably ought to use this. Okay. So what are some of Paul's principles that we talked about? I'll get you kind of started out and then just help me here. So one of them might be, we should be thinking about the glory of God, right? What else should we be thinking about when we have these decisions? What does Paul tell us we should be thinking about? Another's yeah, conscience. Yeah. Another's conscience. We should be thinking about someone else, not necessarily just ourselves. Okay. Another's conscience. What else should we be thinking about? Anybody else have an idea? Brotherly Brotherly love. Yes, what does it mean to love other people? Great. Brotherly love. What about, what else? Does Make it, it help others know Yes, is it edifying, right? Does it help others? Does it help them know Christ? Anybody else? Maybe my rights versus other people's rights? How does that work? You guys hit most of them, that's pretty good. So what would you have done? You know, maybe donuts aren't your thing. So make this something that might be relevant to you. What about drinking? What about movies, adult movies? What about something in our lives where we think, there's no shout not about this, but what do I do? Think about what would you do? Is there only one right answer to this? What do you think? Do you think there's one right answer or do you think maybe the circumstances might make a difference? Or the people involved might make a difference? It's not a commandment, it's not thou shalt not eat donuts. They come from the voodoo donut shop. (laughs) It's an exercise of liberty. It's how we exercise the liberty that we have, that we have in Christ while we're loving others. So I'll tell you what I did. I went ahead and I stood in line with my husband and I ate that unbelievable sugar bomb voodoo donut. And it was the most amazing 3,500 calories I've ever eaten in my life. But I know myself and I know my husband and I was able to use this opportunity to talk to my husband as we were walking around about what I was teaching, about Paul's message of love, and how Paul wants us to be careful in exercising the liberty that we automatically receive as Christ followers, that we have power and freedom as believers in Christ. But at the same time, our biggest concern should be aware that our freedom should never be exercised where it might confuse or harm someone else and confuse or harm them about what it was, what it is to be a Christ follower. For me, that was a teachable moment because that's my relationship with my husband. And it was a time for me to talk honestly and openly (coughs) to my husband about my faith. I could demonstrate that I knew there was absolutely nothing to voodoo that had any power over me or that could ever touch me that Christ alone was God and had the power of God in my life. But I could also explain that I was gonna be talking about how that freedom I had could only be exercised as long as it didn't confuse someone else. I made sure that my husband wasn't confused about what I believed. So I ate that donut and I was really glad for the opportunity to talk about Paul's principles. And honestly, it was my husband's urging that I brought this donut box back because he thought it would be a terrific prop for me to use to talk to you about this. So I carefully washed off all the frosting on the inside of the box, and I packed it in my suitcase, and I took this little picture of that, whatever that voodoo donut ball is, and he has asked me how I'm gonna use these pictures almost every day since then. And I've gotten lots of time to repeat Paul's principles to him since then. And later tonight, or maybe tomorrow, he will ask me how to go today. What do they think about that donut box? Did they like the picture? <laughs> and he might also ask me something, which he did this morning. You know, if they're concerned, you can tell them those donuts cost about $2.75. <laughs> And I thought, I don't want them to focus on how much the donuts cost. I want them to think about the donuts as an opportunity to exercise the liberty and love that we have. So I'm going to have another chance to talk to him about the donuts and about Paul and about love and about the freedom that Christ followers have. And maybe maybe that'll be the moment that the Holy Spirit prods him to keep talking to me about the Christian life. So that's all I have for today. I didn't bring any donuts from you guys. I'm sorry. <laughs> you would have loved them. <laughs> but I hope that talking through Paul's principles like this on freedom and love and knowledge kind of helped you a little bit in those situations of they're not "shalt not decisions. They're kind of like, what do I do decisions? So feel free to talk about it at your table. And um, while we're speaking about love for I did want to read something because many, many, most of you signed cards to Julie Topliff. And we sent them off, and she loved them. It gave her such a boost. So she sent a little thank you that she wants me to read to you today. She said, Dear Wonderful Sisters of GPC, I received your cards and notes, and I was so touched and grateful. Thank you so much for remembering me in your prayers and saying such loving things to me. I was deeply blessed. Keith and I are doing very well here. It's very challenging sometimes. Everyone is busy and working under pressure. Some see miracles, yet also face heartbreak almost daily with the patients we serve. Guinea is a very broken place, so we who live on the ship need to support each other. Keith and I have a couple's cabin, which is very small but comfortable. Most of the crew live in multi birth cabins, so there's not much alone time in this community of 350 people. We live together, work, and eat together, socialize, have Bible studies, and go to church together. It's a lot of togetherness. Sometimes there's conflict, even in a Christian community. It could be described as a great big semi dysfunctional family. Even so, The ship is truly a temple for the Lord in a very broken place called Kanakri, Guinea. And even in the brokenness of our surroundings, we've met some wonderful local Guinean people by the Holy Spirit. I'm truly going to miss this. I've been thinking a lot lately about community, and I'm so looking forward to coming home to my church family. God has put us together to grow together through good times and hardship so that we can become more Christ-like. That's all that really matters. Please thank your leaders today. They are, they are loving you so well. You are the precious ones God has entrusted into their care. I send my love and thanks to you all. I need your prayers. Love, Julie. So I sent back an email and I told her, we're going to pray you home. She's coming home um, maybe July, end of, August. Yeah, end of July of August. End of July, maybe the beginning of August. So I told them, finish your race strong and we're going to pray you home. So don't forget them when you pray, and you can now go to your tables. Thank you.